welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 193. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at BJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Hey, John, I'm doing great. We are a couple of pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Awesome, Nick. Hey, I just wanted to mention that our second site, graph.nerd-journey.com, is now live. That's the knowledge graph and linked notes version of our main pages show notes that we developed to make it easier to explore our episodes, guests, topics, and links back and forth between them. If people would take a look at that and give us some feedback on Twitter, we would love to hear it. These are the notes you're looking for. <laughs> Such a nerd. But let me transition off that topic and let's talk about this week's guest, Neil Thompson of teachthegeek.com. Some things that stood out to me in this episode were the fact that Neil started as an engineer in the biomedical field, and he was a product development engineer as well. He had some challenges communicating to management in a way that they understood. Felt like he had to keep answering the same questions that he was presenting about. And you'll also learn about the birth of his business, Teach the Geek. What stood out to you, John? I think that I would guide people to listen for the implication that that inability to communicate about his team was partially responsible for the team getting cut, which is a pretty big shock, I think. And uh, the transition to patent law, he became a patent agent. Did you even know that the area of patent law is a field that hires from technical practitioners? I did not. Yeah. Uh, that was new to me. That very, very eye-opening to learn more about that process. Yeah. So listen for that. And then I think the overall theme of communication skills as it applied across a couple different domains. And also listen for one of Patrick Lencioni's signs of a miserable job. I think the very last thing is there was a little hint of the generalist skills versus domain-specific skills. In other words, our generalist versus specialist divide that has come up several times. But without uh, any further delays, here is Neil Thompson of TeachTheGeek.com, part one, episode number 193. Neil Thompson, thank you so much for joining us on Nerd Journey. Thanks for having me. Let's start by having you give us some background on what you do today and a little bit about who you are. Sure. Well, I started a business called Teach the Geek, and that actually, it all stemmed from my struggles having to give presentations in front of management. When I first started working, I was a research associate, and I worked in a lab. A lot of writing of protocols and reports, there was very little communication really. 
my boss was the one who was the one who actually spoke to people about the results that I that I generated. And I certainly didn't mind the fact that I didn't have to be the one in front of people talking. It wasn't until my second job as a product development engineer that I had to take on that responsibility, although I didn't know that at the time. When I first took the job, I thought it was going to be very similar to the research associate job that I had. And at first it was a lot of work in the lab, a lot of writing of test protocols and reports. But then a few months into the job, my boss called me into his office and said that I was going to be a project lead. Well, what's a project lead? The company was too cheap to hire project managers, and they pushed that responsibility onto the product development engineers like myself. So every month, I had to give project status updates in front of senior management. CEO, CTO, CMO, C fill in the blank O, all the Cs, they're all in the audience, and I had to give these presentations. And those first few presentations were absolutely horrendous. I did not know it was possible to sweat that profusely from one's body, but yet there I was doing exactly that. And how I knew I was doing a poor job is I would often get questions after the presentation that I thought I had answered during the presentation. But because I didn't put things in such a way that these people could understand, now I'm, ask, I'm getting asked these questions. I was already a sweaty mess, and now I'm even sweating even more. <laughs> it, was just, it was just a mess all around. Eventually, my project got canceled. The, the project that I was actually brought to the company to do was canceled. And that really was the wake-up call that I needed to say to myself, I think I need to get better at this whole presentation thing because this just, just isn't going to cut it. And so what I ended up doing is I joined Toastmasters. And it's for those of you all that don't know, it's an international organization whose goal is to help people with their public speaking. And they do, they do a great job of that. They, they provide a forum for you to practice. And I really appreciated it. Unlike the first job that I had where I avoided giving presentations, I now was actively looking to give presentations because I saw this is something to get better at. And essentially, I took everything that I learned in becoming more effective at communicating with others, and I turned it into an online course geared towards engineers, scientists, you know, people in the technical fields, and I called it Teach the Geek to Speak. And <laughs> it's a, it's a, basically the course is a six-step process to practice and deliver any presentation that you have to give. I did that about four years ago. Earlier this year, I decided that a one-off course wasn't enough, so I developed a membership to go along with it. So essentially, in addition to the course, you get an online community and then also monthly calls where you can talk about the public speaking issues that you're having. And that essentially was the the birth of what I do now with, with Teach the Geek. And then I also have a podcast, and I talk to, it's called the Teach the Geek podcast, and I talk to people like myself, people that come from the technical fields, and I talk to them about their public speaking journeys. And it's, it's really interesting to hear their stories, especially once I hear about their career journeys. And, and perhaps they started off in one place and they ended up somewhere completely different. Every time I'm on a podcast, I, also, I always mention the name Christine Vartanian, probably the guest that always sticks out in my mind. She started off as a civil engineer. Then she was an attorney for a few years. And then she was a stay-at-home mom for about a decade. And now she works as a personal stylist. So she went from civil engineer to attorney to stay-at-home mom to personal stylist. You don't hear those type, those type of stories every day. So even doing the podcast and, and hearing these type of stories, the career journeys and the public speaking journeys has been really interesting. So that's essentially what I do. That is fascinating, Neil. Just so much to unpack even with that just like kind of early career arc. It, I think, tickles so many of the notes to mix my metaphors there i think so many of us go through when we start to get a little bit of seniority 
part we find out that part of the responsibility of seniority or additional responsibility is is communication right like communicating the goals of the group or the organization or whatever what the status is you know why we need to exist like why we should be funded you know all of those things and it it sounds like in kind of a backwards way you found out that you weren't that great at that part of the job yeah 100 percent. and you know when i first started the job i didn't even see it as some sort of of leadership role i mean i thought i was going to be doing something that was very similar to what i was doing I, it's not as if i had any direct reports i was still an individual contributor but now i had this added responsibility and at least eventually i saw the benefit of getting better at it i i also think that it is a something that happens in i don't know the size of that organization but in smaller organizations where they rely on people to have a certain set of skills without really teaching those skills and without explaining like what the expectations are you know what the format is give them a template any any of those things so it's almost like just really setting you up to fail <laughs> you know i never really looked at it that way but now that I, I think about it, I wasn't the only sweaty engineer having to give presentations in front of these people. So maybe you're onto something. Well, just for the entrepreneurs that are out there, you know what you the information that you need to run your business. And if people are having trouble communicating up to you the, the signals and information that you need, maybe that's not just universally everybody below you failing at that. <laughs> maybe it's you failing at you know, transmitting those expectations and training those people to uh, to meet those expectations. Yeah, that, that certainly would have been helpful at the time. It's interesting that, you know, in this world, we work for different size organizations, but there's this need for outside training, you know, that just doesn't exist. Or it's like a labor of love inside an organization where someone goes, oh, you know, I think this is a cool thing that I need to train my peers how to do. And it's not in my, you know, regular 45 or 50 hours of work a week, but I just, you know, I'm going to just take it on because, uh, you know, it's important to the organization. But ultimately, you know, the health of organizations is dependent on people's ability to effectively communicate within those organizations up and down and peer to peer. So it's really cool that you've found this uh, this need and are, are filling it and, and creating a community of people around that, too. That's that's pretty cool. Thank you, Nick. I don't know if if this got triggered for you, but, you know, we we have these patterns that we're trying to, you know, watch out for. And one of them is uh, from this book called Show Your Work. And the idea was to not be like try to be a lone genius, but to to seek out a community of people that are trying to do what you're doing and join that community. So, you know, if there's people out there that really feel like, you know, this is one of the things that's that's missing it's good to know that there's communities out there like the one that you've created. Absolutely. And we have learned from various guests that community participation, a lot of times it's a technical community for the folks that we've had on our show, but I think it's important that everybody understands many different types of communities that you could belong to to build specific skills. It could be related to the industry you're in, a technology you're using, almost a social group like there's there are communities for podcasters that we could all join because we all podcast so lots of different opportunities as you said neil to meet new people and see the types of struggles they have what they're doing 
learn some of the best practices and and hopefully give back and contribute and make the community better. Yeah, I fully agree. And actually, doing the podcast, I've learned quite a bit from the guests. So I remember I had one guest. Her name was Manjula Sevulaja. Hopefully I got that last name right. But she used to be a mechanical engineer, and now she's a reporter. And she says when she gets ready for her presentations, what she does is she bites into an apple. I remember thinking, well, what's biting into an apple do? But she says it gets your saliva going so that your mouth doesn't get dry when you're talking, giving your presentation. I thought, that's actually pretty smart. Plus, I like apples. I'm going to try it. Yeah, that's a great idea. I never knew this. We didn't have apples when we were at VMware Explorer earlier this year, did we, John? No, no. We had to give a a talk, and uh, my mouth definitely went dry a couple times, so... Yeah. So is the theory that you, you bite into an apple while you're doing the writing so that you kind of trigger the like salivary like bonds while you're doing the writing and then doing the practicing and then you don't even need the apple when you're doing the presentation? Oh, no. So this is before you give the actual presentation, you bite into an apple. So by the time you actually start talking, then you got all the saliva in your mouth and hopefully your mouth doesn't get dry then. Oh, okay. So 30 seconds before you walk up on stage or whatever. Part of the pregame, yeah. pregame warm-up. Yeah. Absolutely. You Plus, you won't be hungry now. <laughs> Even better. Do some push-ups, get the anxiety out, take a bite of the apple, good to go. Absolutely. I was looking at your LinkedIn, and you had this like fascinating journey from the biology space and, and research there into kind of patent law. Can you talk about that transition a little bit? Was that something that was aided by kind of newfound focus on communication? Uh, was it related or, you know, or completely un- unrelated? It was completely unrelated. So now that we're, we're talking about my third job, the, the boss that I had at my second job started a company. So he left the company that I was at to start this company. And then he asked me to join him at that company. So I joined him at that company. But one of the reasons he wanted me to join and a couple of other engineers, is he wanted us all to become patent agents so he wouldn't have to outsource patent drafting to outside counsel. So that's that's what I did. I became a patent agent. And he still outsourced everything to outside counsel. <laughs> so, now, <laughs> so now I'm a patent agent with nothing to patent. And that was the case for the entire time that I was at the company. It wasn't until a few years ago, less than three years ago now, that I actually found something to actually use my patent agent certification. So now I do freelance patent drafting for a firm here in, in San Diego where I live. So luckily, it didn't go to waste. What prompted the interest in biomedical engineering in the first place, Neil? Because you studied that in school, right? I did. I became a biomedical engineer because my father said I should. And I used to lie about the reason I became an engineer in the first place because I was embarrassed by the reason. Oftentimes when you ask people why they went into engineering, it's because maybe they were in a robotics club when they were in high school. Maybe they played with Legos as a kid. I don't really remember playing with Legos, and there certainly was no robotics club at my high school. I became an engineer because my father said I should, and I really didn't have any other idea as to what I wanted to do, so I just took his. So I became an engineering major, and then I got the engineering degree. And then he said, do a master's. I said, all right. So I did a master's in bioengineering. And then he said, do a PhD. And I said, all right. And I started a PhD program in biomedical engineering, but I didn't finish. And by this time, I'm about 25 years old. 
at some point you have to start living for yourself, not for the wants of, of others, your parents included. So that's the when after that year, I really just I really determined I didn't I didn't want a PhD. I didn't want to be in school much longer. Plus, I was tired of being poor. I remember one time after it was the first semester of that PhD program, I went home and I was hanging out with some of my friends that I had in, in undergrad days. And they all went to industry. They got jobs right after getting their, their engineering degrees. And they're all making good money. And they were all playing poker and they're playing with money. But I couldn't play poker with them because I had no money. And I was jealous of the fact that they're now making, they're living in condos. They got cars. I, I could barely afford a scooter. <laughs> and, I, and I just didn't want to live that life anymore, especially since I never really wanted to get a PhD in the first place. So I, I dropped out of the PhD program after a year. And that first job I got for, as a research associate, I got that job seven months after I dropped out of the program. And then how soon after did you get a condo? <laughs> that, wasn't, that wasn't a serious question that wasn't a serious question it, it is interesting though like um that process of kind of by inertia doing things for other people and the process of discovery when we go oh actually i have to figure out something to do for myself i mean i went to school to become an electrical engineer and it was definitely because of my father <laughs> you know i think after my sophomore year i think i've told the story before i I said, actually, I don't know what electrical engineers do. And if it's what I'm doing right now, I definitely don't want to do it. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I had a guest on my podcast and she was a mechanical engineering major. And she said during our interview that by the end of her studies, she still didn't know what a mechanical engineer did. Four years. So you, it took you two. It took her four. <laughs> well, it's it's funny. You know, we talk about a lot of different kind of engineers on the show. So when someone says they went into engineering, like that could be software development, that could be product development, that could be mechanical engineering, civil engineering, maybe you're designing buildings or something. It's It could be an ambiguous term uh, just across the board. I think it's, a, it's an overloaded word, but there are several fields where you can become like a certified professional engineer. Mm -hmm. And those are the real and, you know, quote unquote, real engineering fields, right? And anything else especially if you ask a certified professional engineer is just uh, borrowing the word engineer. 100%. I can even think of some people off the top of my head who are bothered by the fact that you can go to a coding boot camp and then get a job at a tech company calling yourself engineer when they had to go through four years of school and then likely had to do an apprenticeship to qualify to take that professional engineering exam. Yeah. Different words mean different things in different fields though, right? You know, if you're in civil engineering you know, that is probably a pretty important thing. I don't know. I guess those fields had have those things, you know, for very good historical reasons, right? Like the, you, there's a standard that people want to be able to hire. And in software engineering, it's like too wide open to be able to say, oh, here's your certification exam. And now you are qualified to be a software engineer like that. Just because even... When you say software engineer, even the software part is overloaded. You know, it, it could mean a wide variety of things. Yeah, many languages. Yeah, and many different tasks. Like you could be writing compilers or writing front ends for you know on websites. Like it's that's it's all software, right? So, but the, I think maybe that has to do with like young industries versus older industries. Like you know, historically, how long they've been around. Well, I will say that if you're designing a bridge, you probably want someone who's qualified to do it. But if you're building an app, eh, 
maybe you don't need to be have any sort of certification. Unless it's an app that helps you design bridges, but you know, they fair enough. <laughs> or or keeps your pacemaker optimized, right? Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. I I want to say that there was a point in time in my career when I looked at becoming a patent lawyer or tried to understand like what it was that patent law was all about. And it seems like one of those industries that hires out of like hires practitioners from the industry where they're writing patents, right? So like if you're doing biomedical engineering patents, then you hire biomedical engineering like practitioners to be like the patent agents and even to become patent lawyers. Like, am I, am I way off base there? No, you're not off base at all. In fact, in the past, you could work at a company and they would, and the company would actually pay for you to go to law school and you'd go there in at night. So it likely would take you four years to get your law degree. And then once you pass the bar and take the patent bar, then you'd be a patent attorney. The, the difference between a patent attorney and a patent agent is law school. The patent agent didn't go to law school. The patent attorney did. But both of them have the ability to draft patents and prosecute them in the patent office. Got it. And under your your engineering title from biomedical engineer to product development engineer, were you doing the front side paperwork and applying for these patents that you later learned the legalistics about? Am I off base there? No, you're not off base at all. Although when I was doing it as a product development engineer, I really didn't put all that much stock in the in the patents that the patent attorney would do all that type of work. We would just fill out invention disclosure forms passed it to the patent attorney and they take care of the, the, the actual patent drafting and, and the prosecution. It just makes me think of the biography of James Dyson I read not that long ago and how they a particular company stole all his patents and it almost ruined him. You know, his company almost never came to be because he didn't get the patented the patented items correct when they were developed. Uh, that's what I thought of. Well you know when it comes to patents and working at a company Typically, you sign a, an agreement that says that anything you develop on company time with company materials is the is the property of the company. So you don't own any anything that you develop at a company. You have to assign it to the company, and maybe they give you a gift card for your troubles. Yeah, I've thought about that just because uh, I know that organizations are trying to protect themselves, right, from you coming on board using their materials and their IP to develop other stuff. And then you walk away with a brand new business. And in fact, there's been pretty like high profile cases of people in organizations, like, you know, starting to go after each other for that. And like, I don't know, I want to say self-driving cars. It's like a big one. A lot of times, you know, when you're working in an organization, you don't think about the intellectual property implications of what it is that you're doing, that you're creating value for an organization in the form of intellectual property. Some of it's patentable and some of it is just like trade secret, right? But um, it's the business that we're in. And I think we lose touch with that. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Especially if you work in academia, they're really big on, on, on developing novel, you know, novel work, novel research. And they're not thinking about patenting their ideas. They want to publish. That's what their criteria for getting tenure is even, is to publish papers. It's not to develop patents. But now I think a lot more universities are are pushing their researchers to to patent because a lot of these patents can then be outsourced to other companies, which then brings in money to the universities. Yeah, it's it's very true. It's interesting because uh, 
ultimately the whole you know tenure process and in publishing is about securing you know helping to secure income right for the for the academic a lot of academic institutions have like a process where you're only making a certain percentage of your money from the institution and the rest you're bringing in with grants or whatever but if you have a portfolio of patents that's bringing in income i don't think that actually i don't know enough about academia to to know if people can have individual deals where they say you know actually i'm going to buy out my teaching responsibilities with the patent income <laughs> instead of uh, buying it out with the grant money. That would be fascinating to find out. Well, in some instances, professors or the researchers are able to negotiate with their institutions to get their IP so that they can spin out companies. So that happens every now and then. Sure, sure. That makes sense. Yeah, and I think sometimes when you join a company, if you're working on a side project that's wholly yours, you might have to get something in writing with the company you're joining, like, hey, this is my public, my own thing. I'm working on it on my own, my own GitHub account or whatever, and it's not company property. Yeah, that that definitely, that happens. More often than perhaps people realize that you might think, I'm not even using company resources to do this, but the company may come back and say, well, you're also working on something that's in competition, in competition with what we do. So if that's the case, then perhaps we have a claim to what you're developing. And those type of problems can, can go become quite contentious. I can imagine. Did you find after you became a patent agent that there was any kind of crossover in that communication skill, kind of documenting what something is, why it's important, what value it holds, or what the process is? and communicating within an organization. I know it's, it's you know, there's the kind of legal language and then business language, but, you know, I'm wondering if it's still about storytelling. Absolutely. And even the communication with the inventor, him or herself, is quite important, especially if that person has never filed a patent before. There's a, there's a whole lot of, of explanation or communication that needs to go into just telling that person what's involved What's the process even of getting a patent? It's not just you apply for one and you get it. It could take years sometimes to get a patent. And most patents, at least initially, get rejected. And what do you do when that happens? You have to amend your application to suit the, the needs or the, the wants of the examiner that's going over the application. And this is a human being. And they have their own, perhaps, biases against certain certain technologies and that, so there's communication even there with the examiner. A lot of times the patent agent or the patent attorney will schedule a meeting after a rejection with the examiner to really figure out what they deem patentable and what's not patentable. And then you amend your application to suit that. So there's, a, there's communication all around. There's communication with additional stakeholders. There's communication with the inventors, communication with companies that you want to pitch your idea to to see if they license it. Communication with the examiner who determines whether you get a patent or not. There's a whole lot of communication. Not just as simple as, I have this idea, let me put that in writing and get it on the books. If only it was that simple. It almost sounds like ISO auditors, where they come in and they examine these standards. And are do you have controls in place that meet the standard? And sometimes the auditor interprets that standard to mean something maybe different than you do. That That's what it reminded me of. Oh, 100%. And that happens all the time, really, in the patent office. And you actually, there's, there's ways for you to find out what the patent examiner's acceptance rate is. 
And if you see that this person rejects most patents, and they, then you have a whole lot of communicating to do. Oh, wow. That's so crazy. I never even thought about that. Yeah, that it's not just some objective standard that ultimately there's, an, there's a human being on the other side who's, who's uh, interpreting the rules as a human being. And like those, those judges, you know, are increasingly, that's a more and more difficult job. And, you know, there's always a lot of criticism. I, the thing that pops in my mind is Major League Baseball umpires. Like, what is your interpretation of <laughs> where the strike zone is, right? That could, you know, for a long time, that was art and not science. When it comes to patents, there's two bars that you need to overcome. The first one is novelty. Has this been invented already? And you can write an application to get over that bar. I wouldn't say easily, but certainly more easily than the second bar, which is obviousness. And the examiner is essentially saying that at the time you put this presentation or the time you you submitted this application, it would have been obvious to anyone of skill in the art to have developed this. And that's a lot more difficult to get past because what's what's considered obvious? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Is it easier, Neil, for people who are independent parties and claim a patent than if they're doing it for the company they work for? Or is it actually the inverse? Well, I'd say probably the inverse because the companies have a lot more patent attorneys to work on their applications. So they have all the time to communicate with the with, with the examiner, to amend applications, and they have the money to do it too. Patents are not cheap to get. If you're an individual looking to get a patent, it's not uncommon to spend at least $10,000. Ooh, that's a hefty price tag. Wow. If you don't mind, Neil, I actually want to go back. I want to back up one second where you joined the small startup. We've talked to some people who joined startups for various reasons. What was it that drew you to the startup itself? And and what would you tell somebody or caution someone before joining a startup? I joined the startup because I didn't want to work where I was working anymore. When my boss left and started his own company, I was still at that company, the, the second company that I worked at. I was there for still a few months. And during that time, we didn't have a leader, really. They didn't hire somebody for quite some time. So we would have to report to the VP of R&D. As, as you can imagine, he was quite busy. So a lot of time we didn't have a whole lot of direction. And you coupled that with the fact that the group that I was working with was very unlike any of the other groups that were in the company. And so we really didn't have a whole lot of direction since a lot of times people didn't really understand or I would say even care about what we were working on. But we eventually got another boss and he was a nice guy, but... Looking back on it, I'm not sure he was the best suited to lead us because he really didn't have much background in the technology that we were working in. So a lot of times he wasn't really the greatest of resources for us to go to as well. So eventually when my former boss started his company and asked me to join, I was more than happy to do so. It can be frustrating in a position to feel like there's no champion within the organization that's championing the team that you're on. Like the work you could be doing might be good and fulfilling, but if you feel like the entire team is, you know, in danger of withering on the vine or nobody cares about it or nobody understands why it's important, then that can be maybe not just as bad, but close to as bad as if somebody feel, if you feel that way about just your role, it's like oh, nobody understands what I'm doing, you know, nobody understands what we are doing is closely related to nobody understands or values what I'm doing. 
that that's an interesting observation. You know how I knew that they didn't care about what we were working on when other people from other groups left the company to join rival companies that were working in similar type of products. They didn't let them stay very long. They walked them out maybe within a week of them, a week or two of them giving, no, less than a week of them giving notice. But for me, I, I got to stay the entire time because I don't think they really cared where I was going. Like, hey, we're just going to go ahead and make today your last day. Thanks for playing, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, take the full four weeks notice that you gave us. Like, It's like, oh, we feel like you're in absolutely no danger of taking anything of value from us is kind of what that means right or it, i mean it can also mean like we have a really great relationship with you but right it doesn't feel like that's what it was no <laughs> not case. at all it was definitely more of the former yeah i'm wondering um if this would be a good time to kind of transition over to teach the geek because you you kind of gave us the the broad overview and the the quick and dirty story of how that emerged but is there like you know like a like a slightly more detailed version, you know, where like something tipped over and you're like, I'm so frustrated that, you know, this doesn't exist that I'm just going to create it. Yeah, there absolutely is. So I talked about my first job as a research associate, the second job as a product development engineer, and the third job as a startup, I was also a uh, product development engineer. Now it was the fourth job. This was a contract job as a product development coordinator. And I was supposed to do that for a year, one year contract. But five months into the contract, the CEO called me into his office and he was there with the COO and my boss, who was the VP of R&D. And I thought they were calling me into the office to tell me what a great job I was doing. Turns out they were calling me into the office to say that that would be my last day. And because they wanted more sales and marketing help, they're going to eliminate me and bring in a sales and marketing person. And I remember when I was driving home after that, I I thought to myself, I never wanted to be in that position ever again, where someone was calling me into their office telling me that my services were no longer needed. So now I was sitting at home and I had to figure out what I was going to do next. And I thought back to the, the issues I used to have giving presentations and, and getting and then what I did to get better at it. And I thought other engineers and, and scientists, technical types could benefit from that, too. So that's really where teach, the idea of Teach the Geek really started to I guess, bear fruit. And then I shot some videos on what I thought people can do to get better at giving presentations at my kitchen table. And I sent it to a friend. My friend said, you can't put this out. This looks terrible. The lighting is bad. You're just sitting at your kitchen table. No one would ever pay for this. So you have to develop a process. And looking back on it now, I'm actually rather embarrassed that I, that wasn't my idea to develop a process. When you work in medical devices like I did, you have to follow a process. It's FDA mandated to market or to develop and market any medical device. So the fact that it was a non-engineer, a non-medical device person telling me to develop a process for something I wanted to do is it's unfortunate, but eventually I developed the process. It's like my uncle says, when you don't know, you just don't know. And I mean, there's, there's nothing else to it. I can understand that because you're, you're looking at it from a, this is a, little bit different thing than I was doing, I may not necessarily see the application of similar processes over here. But sometimes you, you need somebody to point that out to guide you on your way. So I, I get it. Yeah, and that's, that's essentially what happened. 
Eventually, I hired a consultant to help me with putting the, the entire course together and develop a strategy as to how to market and sell it because I worked as an engineer. I knew nothing about sales and marketing. And even that turned out to be not as I expected and certainly not in a good way. I paid that person quite a bit of money. And what I ended up getting, I think I probably could have gotten for less. And even looking back on it now, all these years later, I, I know I probably could have gotten it for less. They gave me a whole lot of advice that just didn't pan out for the target audience that I was trying to reach, which is people like me. The person I was working with would give me the advice, like, do a, a webinar on Facebook. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not on Facebook. What makes me think that my target audience is on Facebook? But because I didn't have a sales and marketing background, and this person did, I just took what they said as gospel and thought, well, I mean, I hired them to help me with this type of stuff. And it'd be foolish for me not to actually follow what they say to do. So I did the webinar on on Facebook. To this day, I have no clue how those people found out about that webinar. But I do know the ones that did show up, by the time I got around to giving the offer of the course, they all logged off. <laughs> so nobody bought. So who knows if the people that I that were in that webinar had any, well, obviously they had no intention of, of buying, but it really, it started me thinking, maybe I know more than I, than I give myself credit for. I, and, and I, maybe I should have listened to myself as opposed to just taking the advice of someone who deemed themselves an expert. I think there's this issue when you're a new entrepreneur where you're very clear that there's things that you don't know, right? And so there's a susceptibility to people who position themselves as experts. And we don't have the ability to evaluate their expertise or like they might be like tremendous experts, just not the expert that we need maybe somebody with more of a consumer bent like would have like that kind of business would have gone great on facebook but you know you needed to be on linkedin or you know whatever that you know was and is just that this person didn't have the background to know that that's unfortunate but we uh you know same thing for like accounting right like unless you happen to have an accounting background then you don't have the necessarily have the ability to evaluate whether like this business accountant is doing a good job or not. You know, same thing if you're hiring, you know, an HR consultant, it goes on and on and on all those like business functions. You, you just don't know what you don't know. Yeah. I can even recall another story of a, of a, a consultant that I worked with who said that I should be on TikTok because they said, well, TikTok has this great organic reach. So I actually did TikToks every weekday for about six months. And it, nothing really came of it. But now looking back at it, I can honestly say your target audience wasn't on TikTok. So what do you care if they have a whole bunch of organic reach? You're not reaching the people you need to reach anyway. Yeah, that's a good point. It's Figure true. out where your audience is so that you can interact with them and provide them value. Were you already involved in Toastmasters during this time, Neil? Or was that before? It was both. So I was involved with Toastmasters during that second job, and I stayed involved. No matter where I was working, I joined a Toastmasters group that was in the area. So that was like kind of the, the origin community for you when it comes to like learning how to communicate. Yeah. And one thing that I noticed about Toastmasters, for those of you all that don't know, at least when I was a member, there were speeches that you were asked to give to, to move up within, I guess, Toastmasters hierarchy. 
So there's the, the competent communicator is the first level, and then there's advanced communicator, bronze, and then silver, and then I think gold, and then distinguished Toastmasters. At least that's the way it was when I was a member. What I noticed from a lot of the speeches that we were asked to give is that they they were asking us to give speeches that really weren't in line with the speeches that I had to give working in product development. So I would develop these types of, of speeches, but then not really use what I was using to give those speeches in my actual job giving presentations. That was another reason that I wanted to start Teach the Geek is to help people who have to give certain types of presentations, like the ones I used to have to give, to have a place to go to get the, the skills they need to give those types of presentations. Yeah, I can see that. If you're not domain specific, then it isn't necessarily as useful as it could be. Like there's like kind of that baseline set of skills and ideas that Toastmasters has, like, you know, having somebody counting your pause words. And that is certainly useful and maybe useful and it comes out if you're doing a broad variety of speeches. But more important is if you're doing like the domain specific speeches and you want to improve your skill, you know, specifically there. It's this interesting conundrum. We always uh, run up against this. It's another one of the patterns. It's the the generalist uh, specialist divide. You know, do you want to train these skills as a generalist or as a specialist? You know, is it more valuable to have like a general overall set of communication skills and then narrow down to become a specialist? Or do you want to start, you know, specializing and then back into more of a general generalized set of skills if if that's necessary and there's not really a good answer for that i think although a lot of times in emergency situations where you're like i you know my team is going to get axed if i don't improve at my communication then then maybe you know you want to start in on that specialization you know when i look back on my toastmasters time it certainly it, it makes sense to me that they would be general i mean this is a an organization that has probably hundreds, maybe even thousands of chapters throughout the world. And these people are coming from all different backgrounds. So it really doesn't make much sense for it to be very specialized. You probably just want to teach those generalized skills, just how to become more comfortable getting up in front of people, how to stop using those filler words, how to use your, maybe maybe use your gestures and your you know, nonverbal communication better. Just things that anyone, that everyone that wants to get better at giving presentations can relate to. Where you need to communicate about technical issues like within the realm of product development or Nick and I, you know, technical product sales, you know, that is a different thing than more generalized um, speaking. Absolutely. Now that I think about it, I was at a, uh, a VMware distributor uh, before I worked for VMware and they had a Toastmasters club within the business and even then it was the kind of generic toastmasters course you know it wasn't adapted to what that specific company needed i don't even know if it would make sense to do that i mean you'd almost need like somebody to develop an entire curriculum specifically for the company which i'm sure many organizations do you know, past a certain size. It's funny that this discussion is sparking so many of these uh, past memories for me. <laughs> yeah, I remember going to another company as a guest 
And they also had a Toastmasters group within the company. And it's very similar to what you're describing. It's the Toastmasters has a curriculum and you're supposed to follow that curriculum. There's really no option or, yeah, there's no option to vary away from it. Well, and I suppose that makes sense, right? If you, you know, are starting within a club at work and then you start to work from home and you join or you transfer your membership over to a club that's closer to where you live. Like you don't want to have to start over or find out that you're in some kind of edge case version of, of Toastmasters, right? Like you want the Toastmasters experience and, you know, wherever you go in the world, you want that Toastmasters portability. And that's, you know, one thing that Toastmasters is selling, right? Probably the same way that like a, a chain restaurant is selling, right? You get that same you know, uh, TGI Friday's experience, you know, in California and Minnesota and Florida and New York. Same menu across the board. And it is pay to play. If you've never experienced it or never joined, you do have to pay a membership fee to be part of it, as I understand it. Yes. Yep. Yep. Not free. I have a coworker who is very involved with Toastmasters. So if anybody out there wants to get involved and you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, Definitely contact me and I can put you in touch with the right people around these parts. It's it's funny that you say that, Nick. Like, I, I feel like some of my friends actually work for Toastmasters International <laughs> um, out of uh, the greater Denver area. I think they their headquarters moved there and a bunch of my friends all moved there because they all happen to be working for, for Toastmasters. It's uh, yet another thing I didn't think about until just now. Did, did you meet anyone, Neil? within the Toastmasters group who was looking to strike it out on their own in the same way you were kind of a, a friendly face that you could buddy up with or not really? No, no, I can't say I did. I mean, looking back on it, I'm pretty sure the majority of people who were members, at least at the clubs that I was at were all employees and they were at least outwardly happily being employees. so interesting to me to hear Neil speak about participating in Toastmasters, which is kind of a generalist communication and speaking community group, but that participation helped him discover that his business needed to be more specialized than that community was serving because it was specifically for technical people giving the same types of presentations that he had trouble with earlier in his career, kind of solidified the target market in my mind. Yeah, definitely. I, I totally agree with that. The thing that it also made me think about while we were listening to him was that he was really good about not having pause words while he was talking to us, and we were both pretty terrible about it. So maybe that's something that we really um, need to um, think about Um figuring out um, how to um, fix. Yeah, you know, right? Of course. I do think that the participation in a generalist community and getting the idea of specializing even more is kind of analogous to 
having different types of mentors for different things. You may have a mentor who is a, maybe they give you general career advice, but you might need a different mentor who can give you advice on how to get into, I don't know, becoming a patent agent, for example. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that having generalist advice doesn't preclude having domain-specific advice. Nope. So that is also analogous to our analysis of that generalist specialist divide, that maybe you can maintain your generalist credentials but be a specialist at very specific things and not uh, make your entire career about being a specialist in that thing. Episode 26, The Generalist Specialist Divide. Nice. Now, of course, I need to call that out in graph.nerdashjourney.com. I like it when John gets on work. <laughs> That's just feedback, John. And as Neil learned, feedback helps us see our blind spots. I'm just helping you see them. Yeah, it's true. Those blind spots that are uh, obvious after the fact, after they've been pointed out to us, right? I actually am still stuck on the patent law, becoming a patent agent and maybe even a patent lawyer, a patent attorney. Oh, when are you changing careers? I am not. Oh, okay. But it, Excuse me. It is definitely something that I considered at one point in time in my career. And it is interesting to listen to somebody who actually went through that process, maybe decided not to go to law school. But here is somebody who went through that process has knowledge about that industry and could maybe give advice on that as a career path. We didn't really talk to him about the patent agent uh, career path. Um, and maybe that's something that we need to have him back on to dive into specifically. Yeah. What is, what is the general background that one would need to have to have the right skills for that? Right. Is it just hard sciences? Would there be a demand for people who have been IT practitioners. Yeah, a bunch of things that, you know, spring to mind there. Be cool to have somebody on who went through the patent process as a submitter as well. Oh, that would be interesting too. Yeah, that's a good point. Calling all inventors. <laughs> well, Nick, I think that's it for what we had planned. Anything else pop in your mind before we get out of here? Nope. Just a reminder, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at NerdJourney. All right. Farewell, listeners, and tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White, at VJourneyman, and Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore, signing off. Adios. Adios.